What is up, Mercy Road? How we doing? Good. So good to see you guys today. Uh, we're Justin and Trisha Davis, and we're excited to be with you. Mercy Road has been a friend of ours for many years. Josh and the staff here have been so kind to us. And so we're just honored to be able to uh, spend a few moments with you today. Uh, we lead an organization called Refine Us Ministries. Our mission is to restore hope and renew relationships. And so if you're here for the first time and you're thinking, oh, guest speakers, come back next week, all right? A new series starting next week. Uh, we're gonna be talking about relationships and kind of setting the foundation for what you guys are gonna be talking about over the next few weeks. And so we're excited to uh, do that today. So before we get started, we'd love to introduce you to our entire crew. This is our family. Um, we never look this good, but we love them. Um, we have... <laughs> Three boys that are now adulting. Um, our one is now in college. And then five years ago, we adopted our son and daughter, Jalen and Janiah. They're cutie patooties in here, but they're bigger now. They're big people. It's sad. Uh, but this picture, I love it so much because as a mama, they are my vision come true. They are my dream boats. And I just, we are hard and messy. Like people who know us be like, yeah, mm-hmm. We are messy, but... I know for each of you in this room or listening online, watching online, regardless if you're eight or you're 80, we all have a vision for our life, right? Maybe you're in middle school and middle school is kind of a mess. So you like have this vision that high school, like everything's going to change. Maybe you're in a season of singleness and you just feel like, man, I want a man. And God's like saying, girl, you don't need no man. I have you. Like, and maybe for you, you're in a season of like retirement and you're like, I'm not ready because I'm still 29, but you're really 69. You know, we all have this vision for what our life is going to look like. And Jess and I are no different. Um, a couple of years ago, I had this crazy vision. Like, have you ever had a vision that you just saw so clearly and you knew that it was just going to happen just so succinctly? It was going to be amazing. This was kind of the vision I had for this moment in my life, and it was to run a half marathon. Do I have any runners here? Okay, three. <laughs> I, when I say I'm a runner, I am that person on the side of the road that you literally cannot stop watching because you borderline think you should call 911. Like, I'm a really ugly runner, but I wanted to run a half marathon, so I tell Justin that I'm gonna do this, and he's like, you know what? I'm gonna do it with you. I was like, really? That's amazing. So I went old school, printed out like how to train for a marathon or a half marathon. And they do these things called short runs, which to me were like still really long runs. And then on the weekend, you would do your long runs. So I got all the gear, I was ready. And then the day came, our first long run. I went to go wake up Justin. I was like, baby, are you ready? And he's like, oh, dude, you know, um, I'll, I'll catch up to you. And so 17 weeks later, he caught up to me and it was the day of the race and I had never done this before. And so I was really disappointed at how uninspiring a lot of this race, you know, went. Like, first of all, the number that you put on, it's called a bib. So you put your bib on and then once you have your bib on, they stick you in what they call corrals. Now, what goes in corrals? Cattle, thank you very much. Well, the, the corrals, they're alphabetized. And if you're super fast, you're in corral A. If you're the Davises, you're in corral Y. Because corral Y is the question mark corral. It's the last of the runners and it's right before the walkers. So if you fail running, you could just walk yourself right across the finish line. So I'm excited. I'm pretty excited because I know I'm gonna smoke Justin. He's super athletic and I'm like, kinda. And I knew he didn't train. So we get to the start line, we take off. And Justin, he's like running at a pace as if he was in corral A. 
And I was like, what is going on? Like, I'm like, he's just really excited. He's going to slow down. Mile two, he's still going. Mile three, he's still going. Mile four, I'm like, what in the world? He loses his mind. He's like, this is amazing. I'm so excited. And I was like, dude, it's 13 miles. And he's like, well, this is the longest I've ever ran. Now, Trisha wasted 17 Saturdays of her life doing these long runs, right? She printed out these sheets, and I'm like, you know, there's an app for that. And so I downloaded this app called Couch to 5K, which basically described my life at the time. And I, print, I got on this app, and a 5K is what, like 3.1, 3.2 miles, I don't know. And I created a playlist for the Couch to 5K app, and I just thought to myself, if I run a 5K four times a week, right, that's like what, 12 miles? Like adrenaline will carry me the, the other mile on the day of the race. So I had never ran past 3.1 miles. So when we get to mile four, it's like a personal best. I'm like, you wasted your life. And like mile, I don't know, like mile eight, I'm starting to get like really evil with my thoughts because I'm thinking well, maybe I can trip him. Maybe like, I, it's the first time I remember like having a fight. A real fight bonding experience this was. And like winning the fight before I invited Justin into the fight. But because Jesus loves me, mile 10 happened. And we get to mile 10 and Justin's like lower extremities go like all Hulk Hogan on them. And he's like, all of his muscles are like all cramped up. And so he starts to yell and grab his rear end. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It wasn't that dramatic. And people are thinking like Sanford's son, like, oh my gosh, but he's not <laughs> holding his heart. He's holding his rear end. I'm like, what are you doing? So then he lays on the ground and he's like, I need you to work my leg. No, 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 no. What I said was, go on without me. Don't sacrifice your time for me because I did not want to hear the story for the rest of my life. That is not a true statement. And so he's laying on the ground and I've got his little skinny chicken leg and I'm going back and forth. And you would think because I love Jesus, I'd be praying over my man. But I was like, so I help him up and he literally cannot bend his legs because his muscles are so cramped up. So the only thing that he can do is like this duck walk. And so for the- It did not look like that. Yes, the next three miles, he duck walked and I was like, this is amazing. So then we get to the end of the race. Now we had never done this before. So I had no idea that there would be grandstands of hundreds of people. And my very competitive husband- who does not tell me, begins to run, like sprint, as he's been sprinting the whole race in front of this crowd. Listen, I'm from Southside Chicago. If I had earrings to take off and sleeves to roll up, I would have taken my man out right there in front of them. But he's so far ahead of me. And I was like, oh no, he did it. And so I finally finished the race. A little upset, it's fine. But because Jesus loves me, Justin didn't know that they take video of you at the end. Me and my boys, we watched that video over and over and over again. Because you see Justin like running, finishing the race, and then he thinks he's done. And then on the video, you see him go. <laughs> right? But all of us, you, know, you probably have your own stories. A story of like, this is the vision I have for my life. And you maybe have the belief like I did that I put the work in. I trained hard. And oftentimes in Christianity, we have this belief that if we love God, our life and our circumstances and the vision that we have for our life is not only going to come into fruition, but it is just going to go up and to the right. You know, I think uh, for those of you that are married or those of you that aspire to be married one day, uh, we not just have a vision for our life, but we have a vision for our marriage. 
right? We have a vision for what our marriage is gonna look like. We, we get to this place where we say, you know what, I'm gonna better for worse, richer for poorer, sickness and health. I'm gonna walk down the aisle. I'm gonna promise these things to God, to my spouse in front of friends and family. It's going to be amazing, right? We have this vision for how our marriage is gonna be. It's why we look at movies like The Notebook and think that's how it's going down for me. I'm gonna die in a hospital bed with my husband. That's how The Notebook ends, all right? If you haven't seen it, I just saved you three hours of your life, all right? But that's what we think. Longer married is gonna equal a better marriage, right? But oftentimes what happens is the vision that we had, much like the race that we ran, doesn't play out like we thought it would. But the good news we wanna share with you today is no matter what your vision for your marriage was or what your vision for your future marriage is now, God has a vision for your marriage. And unlike our vision for marriage, God's vision for marriage is not dependent on circumstances. It's not dependent on your background, how you grew up, what your preconceived idea of marriage is. God's vision for marriage is true for all people in all places and at all times because God is the originator of marriage. He created it. He created marriage to mimic and to resemble and reflect his relationship with us. And that vision plays out in Genesis chapter two. We're gonna look at a passage of scripture today that may be familiar. If you grew up in church, you maybe heard this a hundred times. Maybe you had part of this scripture read at your wedding. No matter how familiar you are with this passage, I want you to listen to it and read it as if you've never heard it before. It says this in Genesis chapter two, verses 20 through 25. It says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed the place up with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, now this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Now here's the most famous part, right? This is the part we're most familiar with. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And then one of the most underestimated and I think one of the most beautiful passages of scripture in all of the Bible is the last verse of Genesis chapter two. It says, and Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, why is that so significant? I want you to imagine a relationship in your life that feels no shame, no compulsion to hide, no desire to make yourself look better than what you really are, no, no desire to cover up, no, no compulsion to fake it. Like what the writer of Genesis is describing is Adam and Eve's physical state, right? They were physically naked. But more than that, he is describing their spiritual and emotional being as well. They were fully exposed before God and they were fully exposed before one another and they felt no compulsion to hide. They felt no desire to cover up. They were fully exposed and fully safe, fully comfortable. They knew they were fully loved. And that is God's vision for your life. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, God has a vision that you would be fully known by him. And if you're married or you choose to get married, that you would be fully known by your spouse. And you know that that's, that's the vision that you have as well, right? You want somebody in your life to fully know you. Well, God's vision for your marriage is oneness, right? That's what God, that's what he says. They were one flesh. Now, we don't really walk around and go, hey, me and my wife got some oneness going on, right? So the word oneness can also be translated intimacy, and the word intimacy literally means to be fully known. And that's God's greatest desire for you, 
That, that's why Jesus came to this earth to restore the intimacy that he longs to have with us. And so if you're a follower of Christ, God wants to fully know you. And if you are married, God wants you to fully know your spouse and be fully known by your spouse. Now, there's a problem. Not, there's not a problem with this vision, but there's a problem that gets introduced after God's vision for marriage plays out. And the problem is there's a spiritual battle against that oneness. There's a spiritual battle against oneness. I don't know how that term spiritual battle hits you. I grew up in a really traditional, I would say, not spirit-led church. It was just kind of a place we went to, and uh, we kind of checked in and checked out. We clocked in and clocked out. There was not really a lot of life transformation that took place. We went to church a lot. Nobody just really ever changed, right? And I don't, I don't ever remember one sermon on spiritual warfare. I, I never really grew up with this you know, perception of what spiritual warfare even was. And so I kind of, even though I majored in ministry, even though I studied the Bible, even, even though I was a Christian since I was 10 years old, I always underestimated and kind of overlooked this dynamic of spiritual warfare. Well, one of the things you need to know about me is I'm a hypochondriac. So I make up diseases that don't exist and think I'm dying from them, all right? And so before COVID, I was even a mess before that, all right? And my family knows this about me. They make fun of me. And so I try to keep it as much to myself as absolutely possible. And one of our favorite pastimes as a family is we love going to Florida uh, for spring break. And so we go down there pretty much every year. And I love just standing in like shallow water of the ocean and just throwing the football back and forth with my boys. It's, just, it's something that I just, I treasure those times. And so a few years ago, we were in Florida and Isaiah and I were, my son was, and I were throwing the football back and forth. And all of a sudden I start feeling this tingling sensation in my feet. I'm like, oh my gosh, my feet are tingling. Why are my feet tingling? right? Do I have a pinched nerve in my back? And what happens if you have a pinched nerve? Like, how do you get it unpinched? And what if you can't get an unpinched? Does it just get more and more and more pinched? And what if all of my nerves get pinched and I become paralyzed? What is, how does that happen? Is, what, is that temporary? Is that permanent? How do I convert my van from a regular van to a handicapped van? Does the insurance even cover that? And oh my gosh, I was in Africa like two weeks ago. And what if I didn't put my mosquito net down far enough? And what if I got bit? And now I'm going to die from malaria, Malaysia, whatever that's called. I'm in Florida. I hate the SEC. I want to be buried in Big Ten country, but it's not in my will to be buried in Indiana. Does my family even know that? Does the insurance even cover it? How much does it cost to fly a body back from Florida to Indiana? And we don't even have a plot of land bought yet. And what, what if my wife doesn't know where to bury me? But I'm just throwing the football. And so all of a sudden Isaiah says, man, dad, something's biting my feet. And I'm like, oh, thank God I'm not nuts. Right? And so we start backing out of the water and this beautiful David Hasselhoff looking man that I've never seen before comes running up to me. And he's half naked because we're at the beach. And he starts pulling his swim trunk up a little higher than I was comfortable with. I'm like, dude, what is going on right now? And on the inside of his thigh was this huge welt. I'm like, ooh, what is that? And inside this bucket he's holding are these jellyfish. And so we start walking out of the water and all of these half dollar sized jellyfish start washing up on shore. Now, here's the deal. Those jellyfish were there the entire time. It's where they live. We only notice them when people started getting stung. And I think that's how spiritual warfare works. Like the Bible says that we have an enemy that comes against our heart. He doesn't seek to just discourage us. He, he seeks to kill and steal and destroy. He, he seeks to destroy God's vision for your life and God's vision for your marriage relationship. And just because you don't acknowledge it and just because you don't believe in it doesn't make it less true, right? I cannot believe in gravity. It doesn't mean I'm gonna float off the stage, right? That God says, hey, I've got a vision for your life. I've got a vision for your marriage. And there's a spiritual battle against that vision. And for you, if you have a relationship or maybe more than one relationship where you feel like you're in this place of just 
knowing that there's a tension, but you, you don't know what to do with the tension, you're not alone. In fact, it, it, we find it in the very first relationship in Genesis chapter three. And it goes like this. It says, Genesis chapter three, verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then their eyes, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord of the God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord. They hid from God. Here he's in their presence, and as he's coming towards them, their response was to hide. Verse six. But the Lord called, but the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you were in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I have commanded you not to eat from? And then it's it's the classic dude response. <laughs> the man said, well, this woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and the tree and I ate it. So he blames Eve and God all in one moment, drops the mic and walks away. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman replied, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So in Genesis chapter three or chapter two, verse 25, it ends with this verse Although Adam and his wife were both naked, neither of them felt shame. There is a description of being completely exposed, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually, and they felt no shame. And in the garden is a choice. There was a choice to be in the presence of God or the choice to choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so she begins to have a conversation. And I think that this is a lot that happens in our own lives. It just begins with a simple conversation. It's not this immediate act where Satan begins to have this conversation with Eve and say, did God really say? Did God really say you can't eat from this tree? Because if you do, you're gonna gain the same wisdom that he has. See, we have a choice and their choice immediately was to go and hide and blame. And I don't know about you, I have never gotten a book on how to master hiding and blaming, right? It's just this natural response. And in one moment, that oneness is broken through hiding and blaming. There's always a hider and there's always a blamer. And we feel this in our relationships, Right? Maybe you have someone in mind. If you don't have someone in mind, it's, it's probably you. But, <laughs> but we have relationships that we know that are off, especially if you're married. Justin and I have this saying, like, we're not on the same page. And so what we try to do is we try to get that back. We try to restore oneness. And we think, you know what? I can change you. Best marriage advice is going to drop right now. Like, get out your phone, your tablets, like, whatever. You, you're going to want to write this down. If you want a changed marriage... If you would put your clothes in the hamper and not next to it, it would be a game changer, right? <laughs> like, but we realize that it doesn't matter how long you've been married, you can't change a human heart. And so when we realize we can't change one another, what happens is then we look to milestones and achievements. And we start to think, you know what? We gotta get out of this apartment. 
We're gonna get out of this apartment, we're gonna buy a house, and maybe you buy a house, and that's absolutely amazing. Kudos to you. And then you buy the house, and it's bringing you together, and then you see that there's an empty room, and you're like, "Mm mm-hmm, wanna fill that room, right? And so like, maybe you have the opportunity to bring a sweet baby home, and you're like, oh, they're so, mm." And then you realize they don't sleep for the next five years, and then you look up, and there's more of them in the house, and you're like, how did this happen, right? And so (laughs) these things that were supposed to bring you together, all of a sudden you're arguing over, you know, the heater breaking down, these kids that won't sleep or leave you alone. You know, maybe for you, it's getting that college degree. Maybe for you, it's finding that dream job. Maybe for you as a student, again, Middle school, right? But high school, you made the team, you're the captain, you are winning at life. But those things have a temporary capacity to bring people together. The problem is, is they always lose their luster. And so when you realize that you can't change people, when you realize it does not matter how much you accomplish We get to this place where we begin to believe that resignation is the only option. And in our resignation, we just think this is as good as it's going to get. And so what happens is we start creating new expectations. And the mantra of new expectations is this isn't really what I signed up for, but this is what I have. And so we don't necessarily walk away from that relationship. We just kind of quit pursuing the vision that we had for that relationship. Trish and I um, moved to Noblesville in 2002 to start a church called Genesis Church. And uh, we had never planted a church before. I was 28, she was 25, and uh, we sold everything that we owned. We had $5,000 to our name. We thought by the time we ran out of this money, we should have a church going, which sounds very faith-filled, not a very wise way to start a church, but that was our vision. And so we moved on June 1st, 2002, and on June 9th, we had our very first service, and 12 people showed up. Now, as a church planner, you're looking for any sign at all that God may be remotely in this. I'm thinking 12 people, 12 disciples. This is biblical. Three people have on sandals. Jesus himself wore sandals. It's anointed. It's going to work. Well, 12 people became 20 people, and 20 became 50, and then Bridgeway Church in Fishers got behind us, and Grace Church in Noblesville got behind us, and they gave us meeting space, and they told their people to leave and go with us and help us start this church. We launched public services in September of 2003 with over 250 people. And more than the number, it was like just seeing God bring this vision into fruition. It was incredible. From, Easter, or from September of 2003 to Easter of 2005, our church would grow to about 750 people. And people were finding their way back to God and they were finding a home and community. They were being baptized and they were going on mission trips and they were using their talents and gifts to build the kingdom. It was like this amazing Acts 2 moment. Here we are 10 years into marriage and 10 years into ministry and three years into this church plant. And even though things are going up and to the right with the church, things begin to deteriorate in my relationship with God. And things begin to really go south in our marriage relationship. And what Trish and I had done over the first 10 years of our marriage is we'd become really good ministry partners and really bad marriage partners. And all this came to fruition on October 9th, 2005. I came home from church and Trisha was laying down for an afternoon nap. And I said, hey, we need to have a conversation. She said, okay, about what? I said, about us. She's like, well, what about us? I said, I'm done. She's like, you're done with what? I said, I'm done with you. Like, I'm out. I don't want to be married anymore. I don't want to be in ministry anymore. I'm not in love with you anymore. I'm having an affair. It's with your best friend. I want to be with her. 
I'm done. And I wish 17 years later, I wish it was a confession of remorse. And I wish it was a confession of repentance. It was just a confession of resignation. And I don't know if you've given to a relationship and you give and you give and you give and what you think you deserve in return isn't reciprocated. What begins to happen is a sense of entitlement begins to live in your heart and that person can never repay you all that you think they owe. And that's exactly where I was. Trish wasn't going to be the wife I felt like I deserved and so I was out. Well, obviously the intensity of our conversation went way high and Trish left the house and a few minutes later, the chairman of our elder board called me and he was just screaming at me on the phone. This has to be some kind of joke. Please tell me this is a sick joke. Our church was three years old. The average age of our congregation was about 28. We had just gone through a capital campaign where we raised a million dollars to buy the building that we were meeting in. And one of our elders had given $250,000 to that. And I had cheated on all of them too. And they sat at my house for the next few hours, not talking me out of the consequences of my choices because I wasn't going to be the pastor of Genesis anymore. But the choice itself to leave my wife and my three young kids who were nine, six, and three at the time. And I just couldn't hear it. Trish didn't want me at the house anymore, so I went and checked into a hotel. And as I arrived at the hotel, a lady from our church called and she said, If you have any hope at all of restoring your marriage, you're going to go to this counseling appointment that we've made for you tomorrow. And I thought, Psh, counseling? I don't go to counseling. I'm a pastor, I do counseling. By God's grace, I showed up at this counseling appointment and told the lady basically it was about as much as I just told you. She interrupted me and she said, can I just ask you, why are you here? Like, what do you hope to accomplish with this counseling session? I said, if I'm just being straight up honest with you, here's what I want you to help me figure out. I want you to help me figure out how God's going to bless my life no matter who I choose. Like, that's what I want. And she said something in that moment that became the linchpin for the restoration that God, is gonna, that God did in our marriage. She said, I can help broken people. I can't help hard-hearted people. I'd been a pastor for 10 years. I've been a Christian since I was 10 years old. I never experienced brokenness. Trish packed up all of my things, kicked me out of the house, moved me in with a family that had helped us start the church. And a few days into our two and a half month separation, God began to break my heart for our marriage. We didn't talk for the next 10 days. And so I didn't know if Trish was willing to give me a second chance or not. So I started going to counseling by myself. 10 days into our separation, Trish called me on my cell phone. And I tell people all the time, if the prodigal son's dad would have had a cell phone, this would have been a call he would have made. And she said, I hear you've been going to counseling. I said, yeah. And she said, well, I'm willing to go with you. So we went to counseling every day, four days a week, actually, for the next two months. So we tell couples all the time, you feel like your marriage is in trouble? Our counselor to see us four days a week. That's how jacked up we were, all right? Hang in there. You're going to be good. But God began to use the intensity and the frequency of those counseling sessions to peel back layers of brokenness and half-truths and unforgiveness that we hadn't taken the time or had the courage to talk about in the first 10 years of our marriage and began a restoration process that continues to this day. And I wish I had time to tell you how we were out of ministry for the next four years and how God restored us back into ministry and how the elders of Genesis prayed for us to commission us back into ministry. Um, I don't have time. Um, we wrote a book a few years ago called Beyond Ordinary, When a Good Marriage Just Isn't Good Enough. And people think, well, that's a book about an affair. The, the affair doesn't come out till chapter nine. Spoiler alert. So a, few, a few months ago on Twitter, this lady mentioned me and said, Justin, I'm three chapters into your book and you're a real jerk. And I just replied back, if you don't like me in chapter three, you're going to hate me in chapter nine. Good luck. <laughs> but God allowed us to share some principles that have been transformative in our relationship and allowed us to realize that it's God that restores oneness as we pursue him. 
that God is the author of intimacy. and He longs to see you experience it in your life, and he'll restore that as you pursue him. I don't know what situation you find yourself in, but to pursue intimacy with God, it, it's our garden moment. It's where God comes searching for us and says, you have a choice. You do not have to be the sum of your mistakes or you don't have to be identified by your circumstance. Did God really say as the serpent said, and God says, yes, I am here with you. And so how do we pursue that oneness? And it begins when we pray. I know all you just want to roll your eyes and be like, I've been a Christian since 19, whatever, right? Like, Prayer is the essence. It is the conduit to begin the path and to continue on the path. If you are tired in your relationships, if you are worn out, if you feel like you've done all the things and life is not going up and to the right, God is saying, listen, pray. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he will give you what you need for the day. And in Justin's I relationship, man, I prayed some intense prayers in those beginning days of separation. I was like, Lord, just get him in a little accident, just a little, <laughs> right? You know, like it, it was true, honest prayers. But as I began to pray over my marriage, what happened is I didn't have to fix it because I had the power of the Holy Spirit that would guide me every step of the way. And that's the first choice. Will you choose to pray? This isn't in our notes, um, but I feel like just given our relationship with Mercy Road, it's really relevant. Um, Trish and I started another church six years ago called Hope City Church, and the church closed in April. And um, if she hadn't been willing to pray for me in the first couple of months of that, the last six months have been the most difficult six months of our 27 years of marriage since the separation. I don't know if I would be here. It was just so many dark days. And she didn't try to fix me. She didn't try to change me. She just prayed for me. And you never know the power that prayer has as you choose to pray for your spouse. You never know how God is going to use your words to bring comfort and healing to their heart. The, the second principle that we want to share with you, if you want to restore intimacy, is to tell the truth. Choose to be a person of truth. I mentioned that we went to counseling four days a week. So after a month, we'd gone to 16 counseling sessions. It's like a year's worth of counseling in a month. And our counselor was like super proud of us. He's like, you guys are doing amazing. You got, you, trust is starting to be rebuilt. We had circled day on the calendar. I was going to move back home. He's like, Justin, if you've left anything out, now's the time to share it. Because unconfessed sin will always lead to repeated behavior. So if you don't be back here in three months or three years or 13 years, you better come clean right now. And I knew I left things out. Not because I wanted to hurt her, but because I thought if she knew that, it would be over. But I felt like the Holy Spirit just said, hey, this isn't about your marriage anymore. This is about you finally being a person of truth. This is about you finally living in a right relationship with God. And so I told Trish and the counselor, I said, as far as the affair goes, I've told you everything, but I have more to share with you. I said, I was sexually abused when I was a kid and I've never told anyone about it. I've never gotten help for it. I've, there's a broken part of me that I can't fix. I said, I've struggled with pornography for the last 10 years. I've deflected it and I've denied it and I've preached against it and I've counseled people through it and I've lied to you about it. And if you want everything, you want to divorce me, you can have everything. 
This isn't about us anymore. This is about me finally being in a right relationship with God. And in an act of grace and mercy, unlike anything I'd ever experienced, Trish said, now we can start over. Now we can begin again because I finally know the real you. And I wish that was the starting, or I wish that was the finish line. That was actually the starting line of a two-year process of counseling and pursuing healing and freedom from the sexual brokenness that we'd experienced. But one of the things that we've learned over the last 17 years is nobody gets into a relationship and they compromise truth in a relationship because they want to be liars. Right? We compromise truth in relationships because we want to be loved. The problem is you can only be loved to the extent that you're known. And so every time you and I compromise truth in a relationship because intimacy means to be fully known, you're placing a lid, you're placing a cap on the amount of intimacy that relationship is capable of experiencing. And that's true in your relationship with God. It's true in your friendships. It's true in your marriage. And if you want to be fully known, the price tag for that is truth-telling. And Jesus says, the truth will set you free, which sounds awesome. What he conveniently leaves out is, it will make you miserable first. But short-term misery for long-term freedom is a trade worth making. So as we close, the last choice we get to make to pursue God, to restore that intimacy, is forgiveness. And there's a reason, there's a succinctness to this order that we have to invite God in. We have to be willing to be truth tellers before we can offer forgiveness. And forgiveness is hard. I don't know about you, but I'd, I've never strived to be a bitter person. I've never met somebody who's like, yeah, I am an expert at being bitter. It's this normal response. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, what was pure and beautiful, all of a sudden they wanted to hide. And I think oftentimes what happens is bitterness is our place to hide. Because we believe that if we can build a wall of bitterness so high, then the person that has hurt us, has wounded us, they can't have access to our heart anymore. The problem is, is that resentment always lends itself, or bitterness always lends itself to resentment. And resentment is like a cancer. It begins to affect all, not just that one relationship, but all relationships. And so we have the choice to meet God. Over this past year, Justin and I have experienced more heartbreak than I think is humanly possible to be able to hold. Beyond closing the church and circumstances I don't have time to come into or explain, within one week, six months before closing the church, Justin and I both found out that our dads that we grew up with were not our biological dads. And it was a garden moment. We wanted to hide. We felt shame. And maybe you've been there in your circumstances or in your relationships where you're just like, God, where are you? Like, have you been there? And it was a moment of being like, God, you don't get it. Like, how many relationships can I be faithful to? I was faithful to your bride of Christ in planning Hope City. I was faithful to my family. I was faithful to my husband. God, where are you? Have you been there? And what I love about Jesus is he whispers into my heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, I do 
We have a Jesus that knows what it's like to leave the perfection of heaven, to come here on this earth as a helpless baby. We have a Jesus that grew up a full man in full God, access to the power of God, but chose to walk as a man. We have a Jesus that had best friends that saw him do miracle after miracle after miracle. And while he was being beaten, brutally beaten, they were nowhere to be found. In fact, Peter, who always had questions, his disciple that always was his sidekick, he denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. We have a Jesus that as he was on the cross, when he could lose no more dignity, it's as the soldiers stripped him of his clothes and they began to barter over them. And then Jesus got audacious. He said, my God, forgive them because they don't know what, we're do they don't know what they're doing. You see, true forgiveness is when we offer it regardless of how the person responds, regardless of how the circumstance plays out. It's because it's what Jesus did for me. It's what Jesus did for you. That Jesus took on our sin, that we can live in the freedom of forgiveness. We are forgiven on the cross. You see, forgiveness is free, trust is earned. That's a different conversation. But forgiveness, it restores joy. Forgiveness restores what bitterness tries to take away. And forgiveness isn't a free pass, a get out of jail card. Forgiveness, when we offer it, it heals those wounds that we don't identify what was wounded against us, but we identify how we have a Jesus who heals us. And I stand before you today with crazy joy. It makes no sense. I have lost my identity. I have lost my church, but I have not lost my church family. And I have not lost a God that says to me and says to you, you are mine. You are a daughter of Christ. You are son of the living God. You are kings and queens. So here's your choice. What garden do you find yourself in today? Who's the person you need to forgive? And maybe that person is you. Maybe you're the wounder. Maybe you're the liar. Maybe you're the manipulator. And God's saying, listen, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. While we were all sinners, I died for you. Will you choose it? Will you listen to his whispers as he says, where are you? Let's pray. Jesus, you are an amazing savior. You give us a peace that goes beyond understanding. You root us in a place that even when we hit rock bottom, it is still solid surface to stand. That our love from you is non-conditional. It has no conditions. Your love for us, you keep coming and you keep searching that the story of us and your love for us does not end on the cross. Would you remind us that as you took on our sin, that death was defeated. And as God walked in the cool of the day to find Adam and Eve, you walked right out of the grave. You conquered death and you forgave us. So would you blow a fresh vision into our lives, into our marriages, into our relationship, Will you give us the strength and the courage to be people of truth, to be willing to pray and be willing to forgive? 
to live a life in freedom found in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.